0: Well good morning again church family. It is uh it's always so good to uh to gather together to connect on a Sunday and worship and we're always so thankful that God gives us the opportunity and the privilege to do that and to meet together uh, even when it's when it's digital and so uh today is the midpoint of a series that we're doing and through as we continue to work our way through the book of the letter of first corinthians And uh, our series is entitled, The Power of Example. And we've we've seen the last few weeks uh, different ways how example is powerful and it's played out in Scripture. And for some time, we've been dipping in and out of the letter to 1 Corinthians, systematically walking through this whole entire letter. And we've had many series after many series all examining how this letter from Paul helps us to know how to be more like Christ. And that's exactly what our passage is about today, being more like Jesus. In fact, today's title of today's message, Power of Example, is our is our series, but today's title is Imitation. And if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and our, our passage consists of just one verse today. Uh, and as we're going to see, the implications of this one verse provide us with an absolute feast of content. So 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. says, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now, that would be a powerful text for us today, even without context or any background at all. Just knowing uh, that's the instruction from scripture, that would be enough. Simply contemplating that, and, and what that one sentence could fill our, it says could fill our whole entire time. But remember, this verse is in the middle of a letter. Uh, there have been 10 whole chapters preceding this verse. And, and we're going to see there are a few more chapters after this verse. And, and there's a whole lot of ground that's been covered up to this point. So there's context to be had for, for Paul making this statement when he makes it. Verse 1 of chapter 11 is the bookend. It's the full stop, if you will, on a specific section that we've been looking at since the autumn, when back in October, we covered 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And there, Paul was was addressing specific questions that this church had regarding decision-making about things not explicitly covered in the scripture. And in chapter 8, if you you remember back to when we were going through this in, in October and November, uh, what we're going to see today is that this is bringing some clarity back from chapter 8, uh, back from even chapters 4 and 5. And and, and Paul was talking about that stuff, uh, uh, about uh, food sacrifice to idols. And what do you do when Scripture doesn't actually explicitly speak to things? Now, also, before that, think back to this. Those of you who have been around and been with us. Two years ago, yes, we've been walking through 1 Corinthians for that long. Two years ago, in February of 2019, we were working through 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we saw there that this church was broken into factions, where some of the people, they said, well, I follow Paul. And some people said, well, I follow Apollos. And some people say, I, I follow Cephas or, or Peter. And then you have some who are, who are like, let's be really spiritual, well, I follow Jesus. And you had all these factions of people who, who claim to follow these celebrity leaders. And what Paul does in, in chapter three is, is he uncovers their pride and how they were trying to find identity in who they followed and who they uh, claim to follow. And 1 Corinthians 11, one is in one sense wrapping up the discourse all the way from where we were in February 2019 in 1 Corinthians 3, all the way up through the chapters of chapter 10 until today. And, and he's discussing what life priorities should be all throughout that time. And as we see in the next few weeks, it's also this pivot point and this launching off point into how we not only live out this out in our personal lives, but what this means for us as a people, as the body of Christ living this out together. Now, I say all of that to highlight just how important this one verse is, because uh, if you do take it out of context, you miss how important it is to the rest of the letter. So let's read it once more. Read it again. It's very really short. We can do that several times. First Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11.1 says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Uh, when I was in high school biology class, Uh, Our class had the opportunity to dissect a few different animals that had been sterilized and preserved for research, And, and the assignment we had was to identify major organs of these animals and learn a bit about their physiology, and in a sense, that's what I want us to do today with this passage. Let's dissect this verse a bit so that we understand not just what it means on the surface, as, as a tagline on a t-shirt or, or, or a wall hanging, but, but really going deeper and, and trying to see what exactly is Paul getting at at the core of this command? Uh, is, is there more? Is it simply just follow after me as I follow after Christ? Or, or is there a greater weight behind this? And I think there is today. Paul says to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Now let's first start off with, with, with the one who's at the core of this verse, Jesus. Paul says that he imitates Jesus. Now, in reading through this passage many, many times over the last week and a half, two weeks, uh, I, I couldn't get past a couple of questions that I thought were really pertinent to this morning's time in the Word. What does that really mean, imitate Christ? What, what does that mean? What is Paul talking about when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ? And then I had the question of Why? Not not why we should do this, but, but why, Im, why imitate Jesus? What, what is it about Jesus that Paul wants the readers to imitate? Not what is it about Jesus, but what specifically about Jesus is he wanting us to imitate? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but thirdly, what would it mean for us today to take up this endeavor to both imitate Jesus and to invite others to imitate us as we imitate Jesus and that's really our outline today. What, why, and how? Three really good questions when you come to a text. Uh, so let's, let's move on today. Let's start with the why, our, our very first point. Let's start with why. Before anything else, it's important to know why Paul is calling us to imitate Jesus and why Paul pursued this in his own life. What was it about Jesus' life and Paul's that made them different and made them worth imitating? Was it just that Jesus was a good teacher, that he was a good example, he was a moral guy, a moral teacher, or was there more to it than that? And let's start with what Paul writes about at, at, at that act of Jesus leaving the perfection of heaven and coming to this broken world and, and living a, 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 a perfect life in the middle of this broken world. Look at Philippians chapter 2. The words are going to be on the screen for you this morning. Philippians 2, let's look at verses 5 through 11. And this is a, a familiar passage for us. We've referenced it many, many times, but it's still really relevant to this conversation today. Paul writes, "...adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited." Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Verse 9 says, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And then finally, verse 11 says, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there it is. There was one aim that Jesus had that undergirded everything else, and that's glory. Glory. Jesus was wholly centered on making much of God. But in taking on a completely human body and living out that human experience, he humbled himself for this purpose. That's what Philippians 2, 5 through 11 tells us. Look at how the author of Hebrews describes this. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, the author writes, long ago, God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And look at verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Sustaining all things by his powerful word and making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus not only wanted to reflect God's glory back to God the Father, But Hebrews, right here, what we've read, tells us that that he's the actual reflection of the radiance of the glory of God to us. He's the exact expression of the nature of God. You wanna know what the nature of God looks like and what it's like? Jesus is the expression in human bodily form of the nature of God. Everything else that Jesus did, extending love to us by living in a perfect life that we can live, dying a death on, on the cross that he didn't deserve in, in our place, rising again in victory over sin in the grave. Jesus did all of that. All of it was for the sake of making much of God and bringing God glory. Let's look at Jesus' own words before we move on, which really confirmed for us that this is exactly what was on Jesus' heart and his mind. So turn with me to John chapter 17, John chapter 17, verse one. And this is on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He spent some time, some really significant moments with his disciples before he's handed over to the religious leaders and then put on trial and and, and, uh, then ultimately executed. And look at what Jesus prays over his disciples in his final moments with them. Uh, John chapter 17 verse 1 says, Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you, uh, Since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The glory of God was the motivation behind everything Jesus did. Did he, do it to, did he do it from a place of love? Well, yeah, absolutely, yes. Infinite love, <laughs> infinitely, yes. But the pursuit of God's glory is what enabled him to love us so well. And that's because pursuing, making much of God puts God firmly in the middle of the story. Not us, but God as much as we want ourselves to be in the middle of the story uh, and to be in the middle of the scriptures, even to, we want the scriptures to be about us. We want the gospel to be about us. Really, the, the gospel and scriptures don't reveal us. They reveal God to us. They tell us who he is. And that's incredibly important for us today. Because if we try to make this book about us, if we try to make the gospel about us or even our own lives about us, then what that does is it causes us to focus on ourselves. And then we make God out to be a servant of us. And at that point, we have entered into idolatry. We worship ourselves and not God. We are the priority, not God. Everything else Jesus did, his unfathomable love for us, his sacrifice for us, his victory over sin, death, the grave, it all comes out of his devotion to making much of God, glorifying God. So when Paul says, imitate me, as I also imitate Jesus or Christ, Paul is saying that he he has also made this pursuit the focal point of his life because Christ had that at the center of his life. Isn't that exactly what Mark preached? I mean, two weeks ago, as we looked at the end of chapter 10, look back there with me, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for what? For being made right with God? No. For being a good person? No. Do everything for the glory of God. There it is again. Do everything for the glory of God, for the sake of making much of God. And that is the why behind our verse in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. That's our starting point for today. And before we can look at all the practicalities and how that works out in our own lives, we have to be able to be clear on this. We don't engage in mission like Mark preached last week in those last two verses of 1 Corinthians 10. We don't engage in that because it's a good thing to do it's not just a good thing for us to do, so we we do it. No, we don't do it simply because Jesus said so, even though that would be enough for us to to obey it. There's a deeper purpose behind all of this, and that is the glory of God. Let's move on to the second question this morning. Our second question is is the question of what? What does Paul mean exactly when he says that he imitates Jesus? Uh, Does this look like emulating Jesus' preferences or, or, or what? I mean, you think about this, Paul was in close contact to people who lived a lot of life with Jesus. I mean, he had a vantage point that we don't have. He was in, in contact with the 11 there who lived life for 3 the better part of three years with Jesus. He, he knew Jesus' brother, James, and, and had contact with him and conversations with him. So he could find out a lot of information about Jesus did, did Paul find out what Jesus liked to eat and, and make that his diet? Did he go on the Jesus diet? Or, or did he, he find out how Jesus got his haircut? I don't know, his sleep schedule. Did he, he follow his fashion preferences? And I say all that kind of kidding, but seriously, what, what was it that Paul honed in on specifically when he said that he imitated Jesus? it's definitely that first point we just covered. It's it's definitely that that Christ pursued the glory of God more than anything else, and everything else in his life flowed out of that pursuit of God's glory. It enabled him to love. It enabled him to serve. It enabled him to, to be the person that he was because of the priority of God's glory being first. And because of that, you see a recognition in the life of Paul throughout the account of his life in Acts, as well as it's all over his letters to the churches of the New Testament, that that life is no longer about Paul. It's no longer about him and and the things that he wants and his desires. He, he, He says, I've counted all of that as rubbish. I've thrown it all out for the sake of following Jesus, for the sake of knowing him, for the sake of knowing his death and his resurrection. Paul, Paul's world doesn't revolve around himself anymore. Paul begins to imitate Christ and laying down his own preferences and foregoing many of his own needs for the sake of serving others. Why? Because making little of ourselves is the aim? No, 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 because loving others sacrificially is completely counter to our human nature. It's not something we, we naturally normally do. Loving the stranger, loving our enemy, that doesn't come natural to us. That, that, that isn't what we want to do. We naturally seek to make much of ourselves. We seek comfort. We seek, we seek pleasure. But living a life of sacrifice is exactly what Jesus did and called his followers to do. And that's because it reflects the sacrificial nature of the love of God. It makes much of God and God's love. Uh, Pastor, theologian, and author, Dr. Stephen Um, he says this, Christians can love their neighbors for the glory of God because Jesus loved us, his enemies, for the glory of God. We can disadvantage ourselves for others because Jesus ultimately disadvantaged himself for us. As followers of Jesus, we're being called to to live lives that are no longer having, making much of ourselves at the center of what we value. We're called to a grander vision, a bigger purpose, a better purpose of pursuing the glory of God. And let's not misunderstand, this is a holy endeavor. It's not something we undertake lightly it is not a task that that thinks little of god it's something that thinks of god in amazing grand ways this, this week i was uh, reading through leviticus for part of my bible reading plan which is always uh, if you if you've done these bible reading plans you read the book uh, the bible in a year or, or two years or six months or however long you've done it you know that this section of leviticus and deuteronomy and numbers it really if if you're not careful, it can become tedious, and you have to really stay locked in and think about, you know, the pictures of Christ in that, and uh, there are are some moments, though, where it's like, oof, this is tough treading and and plodding on, but I I got to one of those moments, though, these windows of, it's not just law and, and rules, but it's actually story, and I got to this moment after God had given Moses Um, the detailed instructions on how to perform every sacrifice and every ritual. He's given the people the Ten Commandments and and their rules for worship and sacrifice have been set. And and now they're coming to the time when all of this is gonna be initiated and instituted. And in Leviticus 9, Moses tells the people, prepare yourselves for the glory of God is gonna appear before you tomorrow. God says that, that he's going to appear in his glory before you tomorrow. Therefore, Aaron and the sons of Aaron are begin, beginning to make preparations for all that they're gonna do as they really step into the role as priest. And they've, done, they've created special clothes, they've done all these things. And over the course of the rest of the chapter, chapter nine, you see Aaron performs sacrifices that have been given in amazing detail from God that this is what I want the priest to do to prepare the sacrifice. And Aaron goes step by step by step and everything goes really well until you get to chapter 10. And Leviticus 10 starts off with with two of Aaron's sons haphazardly, not carefully, but haphazardly starting this whole process of performing the rituals. And in their error and in their lack of care surrounding the exact explicit instructions of God for how this was to be formed, we read these words from the beginning of Leviticus 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own firepan, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them. They died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me, and I will reveal my glory before all the people. And Aaron remained silent. Can you imagine a moment like this for the people of God to have seen God's glory appear before them several times? This is not the first time they've come face-to-face with God's glory. They, they've seen from afar the mountain of God where Moses has gone up and he's receiving the law and the mountain is on fire and they're beholding it and they're in awe of it. They're terrified of it. They, they've been led by the pill, pillar of smoke, by the pillar of fire. They saw the plagues in Egypt just ravage the, the Egyptians but to leave them unaffected. They've seen horrific things come upon the people of Egypt. They've walked through the Red Sea only to have Pharaoh's army and Pharaoh swallowed up behind them. And yet, these two sons of Aaron failed to take the care necessary to follow the clear instructions of the Lord and how they're supposed to carry out their responsibility as priests to be the the people who were the go-between God and the people. What an important position. This passage is a frightening one for us, and we can wonder at it, and we can marvel at it, and it seems really extreme, but man, they didn't follow the instructions, so God sent fire from heaven and killed them? Yeah. Yeah. This is how much God prizes his glory. He will not stand for people belittling him, especially those who are his people. He's calling you, he's calling me to take this pursuit seriously, to continually to remind our hearts to be filled with a sense of awe and wonder, a holy fear of God. We're we're meant to carry a holy fear in our hearts for God. But isn't he our father? Yes. And, and that's what makes it un, unfathomable to us that this holy God, that's who we're talking about. The one who sends fire from heaven and judgment is the same one that says, I will be near you. I will walk with you. I'll draw you near to myself. I'll allow you to know me for I know you. And that's why we have this, this, this wonder and awe for God because that's who we're talking about, a holy God. It it reminds me of uh, C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where Aslan, the the mighty lion, is being described, and the children ask if Aslan is safe, and 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 they're asking Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver says, "Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the King, I tell you, and that's our God. He he's safe. It is." It is a terrifying thing to draw near to God because he is so holy, but he is so good. There is nothing more good than him, nothing more, no being ever more loving than him. In one sense, our God is not safe. His glory is both unimaginably brilliant and fierce It is right for us to hold a holy fear in our hearts. However, in his goodness, in his love, he has revealed himself in a way that reveals just how truly glorious he is. He allows us, fallen creatures, who have been his enemies, who have rejected him, who have rebelled against him, to draw near to him. And when we begin to pursue this and live this with at the core of our hearts, it changes us. It changes how we interact with him. It changes how we interact with others. So we ask what exactly we should imitate from Paul and from Jesus. Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Jesus. It's not just this vague or ambiguous overarching mission of glorifying God. It's not just this, hey, I want to glorify God in my life. And I leave it at that with no clear no clear method of how that's gonna go. Over and over and over in the scriptures, we see a call to love others the way God has loved us. And how did God love us? It was costly to him is how he loved us. Sacrificially, he loved us. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 22, the, the section of scripture we call the great commandment. We've re- referred to it over the last few weeks. And Jesus doesn't give a new, new teaching here. He just quotes directly from the Old Testament law, from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And he said that the most important command is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And he says there that the second command, you didn't ask for it, but the second command is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes on to say that the entire law and the prophets are summarized by this one command. We are meant to love God in a holistic, whole life manner, our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything is devoted to him. And then that drives us, like Mark preached last week. It drives us to love others. We defer to the preferences of others in order to love them sacrificially and demonstrate a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And if the glory of God is at the center of your heart, the center of your desire in this, then there's a joy. There's a joy that accompanies this act of sacrificially loving others. It's not a burden. It's not something you dread to do. There's a delight. There's a happiness because we get to 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 reflect and image who our great God is, the one we adore, the one we delight in. And as we consider how much God has demonstrated his goodness and faithfulness to us, we truly stand in awe. We stand in awe of the grace of his redeeming us and adopting us. And that natural response is a joy as we reflect that same grace and mercy and love to others. David Garland, uh, author, theologian, puts it this way, Christ's self-sacrifice for others becomes the norm of Christian behavior, the pattern for Christian evangelism. Patterning our lives after Jesus' life causes us to joyfully sacrifice in a way that it becomes normal for us to love others in this way. And that natural response really is our transition point into point number three and question number three. We've asked the why, we've asked the what, now I wanna turn our attention to the how. How does imitating Jesus culminate in the life of the believer? How does that come about? How do we foster it? What, what does scripture say about it? How is it played out in the scriptures? How do we move beyond social activism and social justice to, to a greater purpose, as good as that is, to a sacrificial gospel love deeply rooted in making much of God? Jesus gave us the blueprint for this. And I wholeheartedly believe this, that this is part of what Paul is communicating in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, when he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. What was Jesus' main focal point in his ministry? It was the gathering of a group of disciples. That was his focal point. That was how it played out in his life. Yes, he taught the crowds. Yes, he healed the crowds. He was the the prophet to the religious elite speaking against the injustice and the the manipulation and and, and all that they they were doing and lording over the people. But by far, Jesus' ministry revolved around that small group of disciples, pouring his life out into those early disciples, the folks who followed him. Jesus didn't give us a command that he was unwilling to do. When he says, go and make disciples of all the world, he's, he's not telling us to do something that he hadn't already been doing his whole entire life. So it's the opposite. The command to make disciples is birthed out of Jesus' example in his life. The making of disciples is the furthest extreme of our progression this morning. We cultivate a life centered around the glory of God or the making much of God, and that causes us to want to continually grow in the love of God in every aspect of our life. And then that causes us to want to love others as, as we love ourselves because of how God has loved us. And, and, and we see that the best way to love others is to help them love God more because the most precious thing is God. So why wouldn't we want to help them know God more and love God more? The most satisfying person there is, the most satisfying relationship, the the one that brings hope and peace and joy. Why wouldn't we want others to know about that and experience that and delight in that? If your pursuit is Christ-likeness, then having people imitate you is the logical next step in this progression. Paul says that he imitates Jesus, and that's exactly what we see in Scripture. As you read through the story of the early church in Luke's account in Acts, what you see almost instantly after Paul's conversion is he begins making disciples. He he doesn't wait. It's an almost instant thing. Check this out with me. Acts chapter 9, verses 20 to 25, and your words are gonna be up on the screen. It says, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. All right, this is after Paul, just a few verses before, had been baptized. He's there uh, it, with the early disciples who were really kind of uh, um, suspicious of him. But immediately after his conversion, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He's the son of God, he said. Verse 21 says, all who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man in Jerusalem? who was causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? Acts 9.22 says, But Paul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 23 says, After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him but paul but sorry saul he's not yet paul still going by saul but saul learned of their plot so they were watching the gates day and night intending to kill him but his disciples verse 25 took him by night lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall what we find there is that immediately paul after his conversion is out in the place that he believes he will find the people who are most receptive to the message of the gospel of Jesus. He's in the synagogues. Verse 23 tells us that many days pass during that time, uh, and he's teaching, and then there's a plot against him, and he's under the threat of his life. But over the course of that time, in verse 23, it says many days passed. Over the course of that time, Paul begins making disciples. And the reason we know that is because Verse 25, when it talks about him escaping, who is it that lowers him over the wall? Specifically, it says his disciples. Paul reproduced who he was in Christ by teaching others what it means to follow Jesus and to make him known. And in verse 25, we get a glimpse, uh, the the practice and the habit had become Paul's way of life. And this isn't years and years into Paul's faith journey. It's at the beginning of his faith journey. And from there, everywhere he went, he made disciples. Eventually, you see that that these disciples came together in community and churches are birthed, and then they begin to make other disciples, and they they see other churches are birthed, and, and over and over and over, chapter after chapter after chapter, you see Paul enters a city, he shares the gospel, he makes disciples, he moves on. In some of the letters, we have the privilege of seeing that he writes back and those disciples have then made other disciples and those have made other disciples and it becomes this domino effect over and over again. Everywhere Paul goes, he leaves disciples behind. The pursuit of making much of God by loving him with everything we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves naturally leads you, it naturally leads me to the conclusion that the most loving and most effective way to do this is through the habit, the life habit of making disciples. And then teaching those disciples how, the, how then to make other disciple-making disciples. And that really brings us to our application today as we begin to wrap up our time. What would it mean for us to be like Paul and say this to someone else? What would it mean for you in your life, where you are day in, day out, to look around and to say this to someone else? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. What could it look like for this to be a natural habit, not one that's forced, not one that I begin to break out in sweats every time I even begin to think about it, but a natural part of my life. It's just just who I am, it's part of my rhythm. I just do this. First, I would ask the question, do you value making much of God? I mean, to the point that it's the focal point of your life. Do you value making much of God? So much so that everything revolves around that. Is it at the center and core of your life's ambition? And before you can answer that question, you have to answer the question, have you ever put faith that Jesus is the way to God, to be made right with God? Because everything else, if you're not answering that question, everything else is is a moot point. There, There is another way to live. God offers us a way that is filled with hope and peace and being part of spiritual family and community. And that comes through acknowledging that you're separated from God, that we're all separated from God because we all rebel against God. We choose our own way instead of God's way. And not just once, that's that's our life, that's our bent, that's our nature to do that. The Bible tells us that every one of us is in this state, and that we need a rescuer. We need a rescuer to make a way for us to be made right with God, and Jesus is that rescuer. If if you'll trust that Jesus lived a perfect life and then died a death that he didn't deserve so that he could be a substitute for me and for you, then that he rose again three days later in victory, if we'll trust that and believe that and bank our life on that, then the Bible tells us that we will be made right with God forever, done, sealed. And if that's where you are today and you'd like to speak to someone, you'd like to pray with someone about this, you'd like to ask questions about what that means, um, we have many people who would love to chat with you this morning or or pray with you. And we want to offer you that opportunity. And whatever platform you're watching this morning, there should be someone in the, the chat feed or... Or if you're watching this at a later time, feel free to contact us on on social media or email us at denistonbaptist, I'm sorry, info at denistonbaptist.co.uk. Without this step in your life, everything else I've said this morning is meaningless or hopeless apart from him. And the truth of this gospel message today is, is still so relevant not just to those who are exploring Christianity or who are just taking their first steps, it's still so relevant, even to those who have been following Jesus for decades and decades. Follower of Jesus. It's because of this gospel message that we understand that to successively follow through and making disciples, fully trust that in Christ, you are no longer who you once were. You are no longer your own. I mean that in the most miraculous of ways in Christ you are no longer bound to the old ways of life when God sees you he now no longer he doesn't see rebellion or, or, or failure or sin or shame or any of those things he now looks at you seeing the righteousness of Christ seeing the fullness of Christ's righteousness in your life and that's our sec- that really is our second application question. Are you living in, are you rooted in your identity in Christ as you contemplate making disciples of others? When you are able to live in that reality of your identity in Christ, that God looks at at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ because of what Christ has done in your life, it, it gives a confidence. It takes the pressure off of having to perform. There's no way Paul could honestly make this statement to imitate me as I imitate Christ otherwise. He couldn't have done it, but for many of us, all we can think about when we contemplate the idea of making disciples is how much we don't know, how unfaithful we feel, how much someone else seems like a better fit for this task than, than, than I do, or, or a whole host of other reasons that we try to rationalize. And I want to go back to something else that, that Dr. Um wrote, talking about 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. I think we have this for the screen. And it's simply, it's a longer quote, so bear with me. He, he is so worth it. Here we go. It says, every day we desire to hear the kind of verdict that declares that we are good, competent, and worthy. So we walk around daily performing because we know that we're always on trial. Our lives are fixated on others' responses. Paul's solution to this insecurity is to know that the trial is over there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus it is immensely encouraging to know that because Christ has gone to trial for us, we are no longer on trial. As a matter of fact, the court is adjourned. We're free to love our neighbors and to glorify God. We're no longer in the courtroom. We're newly motivated lovers because of our affections have been steered by the beautiful picture of Jesus going to trial in our place and giving us all the advantages that he had. He gave up his rights so that we might utilize our rights, not to be sectarian, and to abuse or to ignore the people, but rather to lovingly serve them and to be disadvantaged for their good. We now can live a life of freedom that doesn't abuse our liberties, but instead uses them for the glory of God by loving our neighbors. Living from your identity in Jesus as a way of life requires that you're allowing your mind to be renewed daily through the reading the contemplating, the meditating, the memorizing, the praying of scripture, the feasting upon scripture. You need to be in God's word. This this isn't just something that we say on Sundays because it's a good thing to say or because it's something that we're interested in or it's a passion of ours, a pet passion. For the follower of Jesus, this is your source of life. You will not grow and flourish unless you are in God's word. In his book, Multiply, Disciples Making Disciples, I wonder what that book's about. Francis Chan uh, makes this statement about this very subject. He says, making disciples is all about seeing people transformed by the power of God's word. If you want to see that happen in others, you need to be experiencing such transformation yourself. And I would go so far to say that true transformation happens not only by reading it by yourself, but also reading it in community. Commit to being in community with others who will push you in this area of your life. We've said that to live out this task of making disciples, we have to be rooted in our identity. We have have to be in God's Word. And though I'm sure we can make out a whole long list of essential things that it means, there's there's just one more I want to go over this morning. Paul is writing this letter from afar. He's writing back to the Corinthians. He's not there with them. He's unable to be present with them, which sounds a lot like our situation at the moment. However, Paul had previously spent a significant amount of time in Corinth, years in Corinth, investing in people there. And it's because of that time spent there that we see such an impassioned letter it's because of that time that we can take Paul's imploring of them to imitate him seriously. If they had never met Paul, this would be a ridiculous statement. Imitate me. Well, who are you? I've never, I don't even know who you are. But so many of these people in this church I can, can picture Paul's face as they're hearing this read, can hear not the person reading it, but can hear Paul in his words, and his tone, as it's read out before the church. If Paul had never met them, none of that could be possible. Investing in others for the purpose of discipling them requires that you spend time with them. For people to imitate you, they need to know you. And not just the you that you want to project or want people to know, not just the Instagram version where we want to make ourselves look better. We're talking about the unfiltered unedited version because this is going to do two things if we allow people to know us that way one it will give your disciples a realistic goal to set as they seek to reproduce this relationship it doesn't set a bar that's false or fake or or unrealistic over the last weeks we've heard of even more christian leaders celebrity christians in the media who projected such an amazing facade of spirituality, of holiness, only to have the truth come to light and it all crumble apart. And I, I, as I'm preparing, I can't help but wonder, what about the people who tried to emulate them, who tried to follow them? What about all the people who felt like, God, I'm trying to live up to this person's example, but I just can't quite make it. All the while, that person secretly is living opposite of what they're claiming to live. So I urge you, Live, be real with people in this. Let people in on your struggles. Let people in on the imperfections of your life that you're still working out because we all have them. We all have places in our life where, where God is continually to refine us, continually to, to uh, rubbing off those hard edges to make us more and more like Christ. So that's one. Second, being real with people, letting people know who you are will continually spur you on in your pursuit of God's holiness. If you know other people are watching your life and wanting to emulate your life, there's nothing like that for, to, to, as motivation for, for you to, to have a desire to be holy. God, I want to live in a way that pleases you, that brings you honor and glory. Because I know other people are watching me, not out of guilt, but out of, Lord, I want to please you. And I know that in pleasing you is to live a godly life, is to love my, my neighbors, is to love those who are emulating me. So help me to do that well. This morning, I, I, I close with, with a challenge. I just want to leave you with a challenge. Don't be afraid to step out in faith, to begin investing in others in a way that invites them to imitate you. This is at the heart and the core of the Great Commission. And, and I want to acknowledge this morning as we're done that I've only scratched the surface in this, Because if we had time, we would spend probably even several other sermons talking about how do we give you handles on the beginning steps of how to make disciples? Because that's great. You've convinced me I wanna do this is a good thing, but how in the world do we do that? And I'll just say this. I invite you to check out a missional community to go deeper. Because that's the reason we have missional communities, to talk about these things, to to equip us in these ways, and to have these kind of conversations. So I invite you to do that. And and if you're not part of a missional community, you can be in touch with us on social media. You can email us. We would love to connect you to one of those. But that conversation is in vain if we are not first seeking to center our lives around the glory of God. Make your life about making much of God when that's the priority and you continually seek growth in that, you're not far off from being in the place where you can naturally say to others, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you today as a people recognizing, fully acknowledging that we are an unholy people apart from you. We are fallen, we are imperfect, we have rebelled against you. Thank you that in Jesus, all of that is made right, that you see us as the righteousness of Christ. So Father, today, from that place, we pray that you would burden us to be about pursuing wholeheartedly your glory, that it would be our life's ambition to make much of you, to pursue you, Lord, and that that ripple effect from falling after your glory would have eternal consequences, not just in our life, not just in the life of our family, but God, across our neighborhood, across our city, across our nation, across this world, may you do the work that only you can do as we pursue you, God. Make us more like you. Use us for your sake, for your name's sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you, church family.